Thanks, David. I think he did a sterling job in reading out that passage for us. It's not the easiest passage to read either. Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you very much for your very warm welcome to Tracer and myself. I thought this morning, um, with all the issues going on in the, in the world at the moment, whether it's in the world large with um, President Trump and his um, ons and offs and his tweets and the rest of it, or whether it's in our own lives and the people we know, it's very difficult at times to be able to share the gospel in a way that is loving and caring when we know that we're getting so much, there is so much opposition and hate. But we know that Jesus went through that and he has a model for us. So I thought we'd have a look at the end of um, chapter 8, but thought we could have a look at the, um, I'd just do a quick synopsis for us of the um, start. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. We thank you that it is authoritative for our lives and that it is sufficient for all that we need in this life, Lord. Father, please teach us from your word, open your word to us, to our hearts and minds, so that we may grow in our walk with you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we look at, we come to verse um, 12 of chapter 8, we find that Jesus has arrived in the area of the temple and the temple treasury. It's one of the most open areas of the tre- of the temple. It's where people could congregate without any fear or favour. He's there for the Feast of the Tabernacles a very important feast in the Jewish calendar. If you go back into chapter 7, you'll read how he's already invited people to come and drink water from him. But it is a special water, it is living water, a water that will fill them, fill their souls. It will complete them. He uses this model of water because it was part of this whole temple process. They would have understood it, that the background could be seen in the procession of the golden flagon of water, this great big golden flagon, which was carried from the Pool of Siloam, just outside of uh, the walls, into the temple precincts and the high priests 
would pour it out within the temple as a form of purification. But then we read that in chapter 8 that Jesus gives another gracious invitation. Again, as we would see it as part of his I am discourse, reminding people of his deity, going back to the time of Moses in Exodus 3.14. So Jesus picks this public area to begin his teaching as the light of the world. Well, why here and why in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles would he start to talk about light? Well, just like with the example of water, light was a very important part of the whole feast. It was one of the great symbols, in fact. At its climax, they had these great, massive, four large oil-filled elevated bowls sitting high. They were, each one was set alight and there were devout men in the temple dancing around and they held up um, burning torches. If you'd have been there, it would have been an absolutely spectacular sight. And most likely this light-based ritual looked in hope towards the coming of their Messiah, which they are still looking forward to, and the new age of the kingdom of God. So within this atmosphere, just imagine Jesus standing there and saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The kingdom of God had come and he was standing in their midst. Their Messiah was here. Jesus points to himself as this messianic light, if you like, shining and attracting people to himself. He invites all people everywhere to come out of the darkness and to follow him. Back in chapter 3, in verses 19 to 21, the Apostle John likened Jesus being lifted up, in crucifixion of course, to light shining in the darkness. And we know that Jesus referred to um, light in a number of um, times within the Gospels and telling us that the light should not be hidden but the light should be out there providing light in the darkness in this evil world. Jesus' invitation is to come and follow him. But we read as soon as he issues this invitation, the Pharisees start their opposition and hostility. They don't have a go at him about his claim about being the light of the world. What do they accuse him of? Making a false testimony. 
You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true, they said. And as you go through uh, from verse 12 onwards, you see this pattern where, where Jesus, first of all, talks about the light. Then he talks about his relationship with his father. Then he talks about the cross and the fact that he's going to the cross. And people believe in him. People in the crowd. And then what happens? The Pharisees have another go. And then we read that Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. This is in verse 31. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And Jesus says to them that they should, that they should, these are the ones who have believed in him, that they should stick to the truth and they will be set free. And we encourage people, don't we, that have just become Christians to get into their Bible, whether it's a matter of starting at Genesis and working their way through or perhaps starting with the Gospel of Matthew. But to get into the Bible to know what God has to say to them and to grow in him. And we should do the same as his disciples, to grow deeply in God's word. And I'm encouraged by the number of Bible studies you have and your love for the word here at Mafra. Because in this world, there are very few absolutes. God's word is our absolute. It is our authority. Ethics, morality and so many other things these days we are told, oh, it's only your opinion. That's all right, you can believe that. It's what you feel is right. But God has set down our absolutes and what we should believe in his word. So Jesus says in verse 36, So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Referring to the slavery to sin, and we know uh, Paul in particular in the book of Romans speaks a lot of our bondage to sin, our slavery to sin, and the freedom that only comes in Jesus. Only he can provide new life. But the Pharisees, no, they don't like this message. And they think he's being a bit too rough. They know God, they know Abraham, and they've, they've, been, they've been free. They claim they are free. We are offspring of Abraham, they say in verse 33. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is that you say you will become free. Well, of course, they'd totally forgotten about their heritage, hadn't they? 
about having been bondage in Egypt, God's judgment and then being sent to Assyria and Babylon are now under the hands of the Romans. They were really free, weren't they? But ignore that. Because Jesus' message was for them that they would be free. Not necessarily free from earthly troubles, but free spiritually. Free from the judgment of sin and death. And Jesus knows that they've missed the point, as they often did, and recognises their hostility, not just to himself, but to the message. So he says, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And then in verses 39 and 47, we read of the Pharisees' opposition to the message and the deliverer. They keep going on about their earthly heritage, about who they are, all about pride, and they are bound up in sin. The one who would give them life and light, they will reject and eventually crucify. They prefer darkness and not light. Anyone who will accept Christ, they will persecute whether it's somebody that they've hurled, that Jesus has hurled, whether it's uh, outcast, no matter who it is, that person has been healed by Christ, so therefore they will suffer. They have the hide to question Jesus' pedigree. They insult him by saying that he is illegitimate. And here we come to our passage this morning. I've titled it Hostility and Grace. Because we see in those early early verses that the opposition to Jesus has been gradually ramped up, little bit by little bit. They are now openly hostile. And in the last verse we read that they attempt to stone him. Yet our Lord responds as he has done elsewhere in the gospel, with grace. He doesn't respond with revenge, threatening to have the angels send down lightning bolts to kill them. He responds with grace. He teaches them and lovingly tries to share the gospel with them. So we have three points. First of all, quickly, verses 48 to 51. Jesus claims to give life. Verses 52 to 56, his claim to be Lord. And then in verses 57 to 59, a claim that divides. Our first point, verses 48 to 51, claim to give life. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honour my father, 
and you dishonour me. Yet I do seek my own yet yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now how nasty can you get? They were having a go at who Jesus was, where he had come from, and making out that he was illegitimate. We know elsewhere that they'd already had a go at um, the fact that he was human and therefore he wasn't he wasn't God. He'd already they'd already had this shot about the relationship between. Um, you know, Mary's situation. But here they're even nastier. They're calling him a Samaritan. Now, a Samaritan was a, if you like, a half-breed. They were a Jew, but they weren't a Jew. They'd come out as a result of the exile. They didn't worship in Zion. They didn't worship in Jerusalem. They had their own methods. They were they were sort of this half. They were they they were Jews, but they weren't Jews. And so the Jews regarded them as outcasts. If you didn't like somebody. You're a Samaritan. And to say that to the Lord of glory, they'd really lost it. And then on top of that, they say that he's a demon. Well, we know that demons are those that do the work of the devil. And the devil as the one who tries to bring out, bring down Jesus in his word. So what they're saying, basically to everybody in earshot, is the fact that, don't listen to this guy. He's not a, he's not really a teacher. He's not really a Pharisee. He's not really a, um, prophet. He's not really a Jew. He's one of them. He, you know, he's, he's a Samaritan. Don't don't even worry about him. And worse than that, he's not even from the God we worship. He's from the devil. Avoid him. Get rid of him. He's a heretic. But notice Jesus' reply. He says, I'm not possessed. And what does he say? It's very interesting. He says that his goal is to honour the Father. If you look at the earlier verses from verse 12, you'll see that every so often he pops up and says, I work with the Father. I honour, I honour the Father. I glory I glorify the Father. Everything he does is to honour and glorify his Father. He gives glory to the Father. 
In Matthew 11, we read where he'd spoken to, he'd, he'd already been um, speaking to um, the crowd in regards to um, John the Baptist who'd already been um, imprisoned. And then he says in verse 20, he starts to denounce the cities because he's where, because it was most of, sorry, John writes, then he began to denounce the cities where most of the mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Why to you, Corazon? Why to you, Bethsaida? And he goes on. You think, boy, Jesus is really getting it into them, isn't he? He's bringing down judgment on them. And then he goes on, and he's in verse 25. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And, he, and then in verse 28, he goes down to, Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. See, the cities have been wicked. Those in them have been wicked. But he still holds out the hand of grace. While judgment is coming, it hasn't come yet because God is long-suffering. So he wants them all to come to him and seek rest, to come to know him. We also see here in his response that in his speech, in his actions, that they all honour the Father. And when you look at his whole life from his birth to his death, resurrection and ascension, everything is to honour honour his Father and to glorify him. And I love... um, his high priestly prayer in John 17. And he just, he begins, he said 17.1, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may have a good life, may be positive, may bring a lot of people into the kingdom, um, maybe be very popular. No, he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. That's his whole focus, which should be our focus as well as we seek to serve him. His enemies dishonour God in all respects though, as we see. They have no compunction whatsoever. Can I ask, however, do we seek to honour the Father? Do we seek to know his word? Do we seek to know the truth? Do we seek to be obedient to that word? See, as we battle sin and we seek to serve God by sharing and witnessing with one, with our friends, family, our workmates and so forth, 
We don't necessarily have to defend ourselves. He will give us the words to say. And in some cases, the words not to say. Some situations that may be a matter of just keeping quiet. He will handle things. And we also read here that Jesus says that it's the Father who will judge. So whilst we, you know, it's important that we can judge the difference between and discern the difference between right and wrong and what's sinful and what's not. The actual final judgment is to be left to the Father. We read that the, when he honoured the Father, his people were saved. And of course we see that the glory and honour in the cross where he suffered so much and then was raised to life so that we might live. So we should keep issuing the gospel despite times of hostility or rejection or just the fact that people don't care and don't want to know. Our second point, claim to be Lord, verse 52 to 56. The Jews said to him, now we keep, now we know that you have a demon. Here we go again. The demon thing. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? You can just see it, you know, the, the shirt puffs out, the, they start, their pride starts to grow. You know, they're talking about their father Abraham, their heritage. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my, glor- it is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Boy, what an answer. They're probably standing there dumbfounded, not knowing which way to go. Who do you claim to be, they asked in their their very haughty question. The one who offers life through the grave, who says, if you keep my words, you will never taste death. Jesus knows the Father. He says this in verse 55 and he's already referred to it throughout um, chapter 8. He says, I know him. I know him and keep his word. He's, you know, he's repeating it so they'll get it. He, he says to them again, I know the Father, you don't. Because he, he says, but you have not known him. He, said, he says, 
But guess this, get, get, get this, you've not known him, but I know him. Jesus' claims were extremely controversial, as, as you know, particularly um, the IMs, and their connection with the Father. The whole idea that anybody could have a personal connection with God just didn't come into the picture. Yahweh was God, the creator, out there and you could not have a personal relationship with him. And even the name of Yahweh could not be mentioned. He says later on, I am the bread of life. He's already said, I am the living water. He said, he said, I am the light of life. And a number of other I am. He's constantly made different claims. And he's, and Jesus says that he doesn't lie but tells the truth. If I were to say that I do not know him, talking about his relationship with the Father, I would be a liar. Like you. Ooh, that'd hurt. But but I know you, I know him and keep his word. Again, this message that we should be keeping God's word. He keeps his promises. Look at his promises in regards to the fact that he was going to die, you know, in the Old Testament, but then, sorry, Jesus himself speaks time again about the fact he was going up to Jerusalem to die. It all became, it was all true. And so many other um, things. Jesus has unusual power over life, creation and so forth. If you read verse 51. If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Now the Pharisees knew that Jesus, as far as I was concerned, no human being had power over death, only God. So if Jesus was saying this, that Jesus was saying that he was God and as far as they were concerned, they couldn't accept it. He has divine um, attributes. He is divine. He, he is the truth. He is eternal. He is the creator. He is omniscient. He knows their thoughts and where they originate from. That's why he says, you're from the father of the devil. He claims, his claims do not fit. Sorry. Um, his claims do not fit in a small boxes. Jesus sent the prophets. He provides salvation. He is God of very gods. He existed before Abraham. And he's the one to whom God's covenant with Abraham pointed. He was the seed, the blessing of the nations. Because we know Israel failed miserably, didn't they? Time after time. But Jesus fulfilled that promise and he will complete that promise in his second coming when all the nations will be forced to bow down and grant him homage and grant him adoration and glorify him. And in verse 56 we read, Abraham looked forward to me, that is Messiah, 
We read, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham would bless the world through a son, a lamb. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac and God's provision of a propitiation substitute in a lamb pointed to the father's willingness to sacrifice his own son, the Lord Jesus, as the substitute for our sins thousands of years later upon the cross. So when we're talking to people, and I love some of the um, things that were said in the um, prayer points, we shouldn't just domesticate Jesus and say, look, it's wonderful, you should become a Christian because give gives you peace, you get a better life, and let's, you know, and, and when you come together with us, we all, we all love Jesus, and if you're in a certain part of the church, you know, you'll, you'll become prosperous and you'll, and you'll be, you know, you'll, you'll never be sick and the rest of it. No. When we speak to people, we need to be, do what Jesus did. Speak to the crux of the matter, that of sin, and the fact that man has turned away from God and is separated from God and is under judgment. And we need to graciously care, graciously speak of God's love and care for them in dying for them on the cross. And we see also that Jesus' claims burst open um, the fortresses in life. Look at the pride of the Pharisees. You know, they they were just it. They were the elite of the elite. They were the religious elite. Nobody could question them. What does Jesus do? He cuts them to the heart. He goes to the heart of the situation. It's their sin. It's their pride. And we all know that um, Jesus' claims could be verified. Everything that he said. There were 250 um, prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. He was born of the tribe of Judah. He came from Bethlehem. Um, he came out of Nazareth. Look at his prophecies regarding his death. And we know that the prophecies of his return he will fulfil again. Do we know God personally? Are we his sons and daughters and co-heirs with Christ? And then in verses 57 to 59, we see that his claim that divides. So the Jews said, "You are not fifty years of old, fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham?" Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am." So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Here we go again. Another shot at Jesus about his age sarcastically asking him, how could he know Abraham when he's not even 50 years of age yet? Completely again missing the point. Missing the point of the whole exercise. 
Luke, we reckons that Jesus was about 30 years of age at this stage. Which makes it even worse if you look at the, from the Pharisees point of view. Our Lord, however, graciously doesn't try to highlight their inadequacies, their ignorance, their darkness, but simply states that he is God, the one their ancestors worshipped, the one who they constantly keep bringing up in discussions, in the Gospels. Our ancestors worshipped God, aren't we good? He's the creator. He's the one who provided the covenant with Abraham. Again, their father and promised blessings to his seed. But then to say, I am Yahweh, boy, before Abraham was I am, he highlighted that it was, it was him who created the prophets, all those they admired. But they refused to see it. They couldn't see it because they didn't have the spirit. They were blinded in darkness by their sin. He had already spoken about sin. But all they are interested in is focusing upon their proud heritage in Abraham. They were the blessed ones. And it's interesting if you look at Uh, Matthew 23, Jesus breathes out woes to the Pharisees um, because of their whole refusal to accept him, to even listen to him, to open their lives to him and, and, and to cause problems for everybody else being able to. They were a hindrance to the rest of the people. We see here that Jesus shines. His argument is irrefutable. They are in the presence of Yahweh. The kingdom of God has come. They don't have to go seeking the Messiah. He's already here. There was no need to keep looking for, you know, anybody else. Yahweh himself, God was in their presence. He had already come and was standing there talking to them. He'd been hurling, he'd been teaching, he'd been doing so many things and yet they could not see it, they were blinded. He was a shining light, providing light all around, quenching the darkness. But those in the darkness preferred the darkness, not the light. Sin does not like to be revealed, does it? They did not like their sin to be revealed. They were the upright, holy teachers and leaders of Israel. They were special, they thought. But Jesus had told them that they weren't. He said, you you guys are going to die in your sins and remain in darkness. We know that some of the crowd had heard and believed and wished to remain in him. And we would understand that Nicodemus from earlier on had been, you know, following along. And he, you could say he was one of them who was remaining in him. 
but the majority wouldn't accept his deity. They saw red and wanted to kill him by stoning. However, his time had not yet come. Jesus would die by crucifixion, not stoning. See, Jesus wants them to live. Live in him, to know the truth. To be in relationship with God their Father. But what's their reaction? Crucify him, crucify him, isn't it? Later on. At this stage, it's, they just want to stone him and get rid of him for heresy. He manages to slip away. We don't know how, but he does. Their attempts fail miserably. We know that in the Gospel of Mark, he said, um, Mark writes that Jesus stopped teaching the crowd because they'd already made up their decision who he was. He just taught them in parables. But then he would turn to the disciples and explain who the what the parables were all about, knowing that the crowd wouldn't understand. So we've seen that that Jesus claimed to live in verses 48 to 51. Verses 52 to 56, he claimed to be Lord. And then by saying that he was the I am, in verses 57 to 59, that's a claim that divides. We are disciples who are to be faithful. We know that opposition will follow if we're faithful, but we are to speak the gospel and leave the results to God. If we honour him, he will honour us. We are to press faithfully onwards, declaring his word, no matter what the opposition or indifference. We are to show his grace like Jesus did, in the, in the way that we relate to people over whatever hostility they show to us. We are to care for them. We are to pray for them. We are to seek their welfare as did Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have your word so that it shows us how to live. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who came obediently to die upon the cross so that we might live. Father, give us the strength and the perseverance to be able to lovingly declare your good news whether it's in the way that we live or whether it's one-on-one with people 
as we talk to them, Lord. Help us to be patient in their indifference. Help us to be peaceful and loving in their hostility. And help us in all things to honour you and give glory to you and the Father. In Jesus' name, Amen.